Welcome to the Translate Your Doctor podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Figures, joined as always with my co-host and best friend, Dr. Trey Sertish. <laughs> Trey, happy Wednesday. What day is it even? You and I... Happy birthday. Is thank what you very say. much. My birthday, <laughs> February 23rd. I survived the snowpocalypse in Texas. <laughs> Uh, last week you did as well mm-hmm. did you you didn't have to work last week right during no the, i was off service thankfully uh, thankfully my gosh it's absolutely insane i think it, it, you know patients and anyone else I, I, a lot of the physicians that i know were able to work from home and do televisits one of the, the privileges of working in this digital health society economy but heaven help and and thoughts and prayers with anyone that needed to work in a hospital and had to try to figure that out a lot of long shifts for physicians mm-hmm. and nurses mm-hmm. i imagine but you and I also did something interesting last week. We had our first Translate Your Doctor seminar last uh, Sunday, mm-hmm. which we had with a relatively intimate crowd of, I think we had seven people that showed up, something that you and I have tried to figure out, which is we've got this podcast. You and I have this desire, this mission to focus on people, not problems, patients, not problems, and really to to make medical information and uh, empowerment more accessible to the average patient, which we're doing under this Translate Your Doctor moniker. And the seminar was really our first foray jumping into that. Living with heart failure is, I think, what we what we labeled it as. And you put together a two-hour lecture that ran 30 minutes over because of the <laughs> wonderful questions that we, that we had. How are you thinking about, I mean, it's so fresh. We're a couple of days after. How are you reflecting on how you think it went? And, and what do you what are your takeaways as you and I think about what in the heck are we doing with this brand that we're trying to build here? Yeah. Well, again, we were just talking briefly before and uh, avoiding all confirmation bias. I just felt great about it. I mean, I did. I felt great about it. It really reinforced why we thought to do this and why it's important to us and specifically to me. And it just felt like it was filling a hole that my clinical practice doesn't offer. It just you know, having that kind of relationship with patients who are not in the hospital really sick in that moment, but still have all these questions, still have all these needs and desires and fears and excitement when they've recovered and they want to share that. I mean, it's just, we saw the gamut of even with just this small patient population, I was surprised about the diversity of types of heart failure. It was very shocking, actually. And then also their stories and where they are in their disease process. Something you and I've talked about offline is as much as you and I feel really passionate about what we're trying to do with Translate Your Doctor to reach every patient, hopefully, and and empower them with how to take control of whatever condition they're living with. There's this fear, I think, when you do a podcast, when you do a creative endeavor, that no one's going to listen that you're going to put all of your your heart and soul into something and that just you're going to knock on the door and no one will be home. And so I think there was something to the fact that anyone even showed up. We, we offered it for free, but mm-hmm. even that, we weren't exactly sure that anyone would care. Yeah, it was two and a half hours on a Sunday. I was shocked. Again, when you texted me, whenever it was, two weeks ago or something, that, that one person signed up. I was like, wow, that's, I mean, incredible. I, I'll take that as a victory and so on. And then you just kind of slowly populate, oh, this person, this person. Even during the, the actual lecture and seminar, no one dropped off, you know, that, that people were just there and engaged and, and they didn't have to be. And, and I think that I, I hesitate to equate that with what we're offering per se. You know, I, I don't think we need to blow our horn loud from that and brag, but I think it speaks more importantly to like the need, like 
that how much these people needed this and which we suspected, which is why we did this, you know, right. Uh, getting into that confirmation bias question, but it really felt like that. It really felt like they needed this. They wanted this and we were offering this. And when those things line up, it just feels really, really, it's one of the most valuable experiences as a physician. I think you can feel. And as a person, it's just that I am offering something to somebody and they are exactly looking for that thing. And that just feels really, really good when they align. Yeah. You, you and I have a hypothesis that there's a gap and what we want is for patients to also perceive that there's this gap that, that we can meet them halfway and having this, this conversation with them. So how, how are you thinking? We've talked a little bit about this offline, but we, we've saved mm-hmm. some of this for this dialogue. How are you thinking about how we construct these talks going forward? We, we had thought maybe that that's our business model. Maybe we charge for these talks for these sort of crash courses on managing certain conditions and now it feels like we've swung in the other direction that maybe we just offer those as, as a way to evangelize free to patients to just help as many people as we can. And then if we can have a, a deeper relationship after that, then maybe that's the goal. I mean, that's what it feels. <laughs> this is changing all the time because I think our experience is determining that. And I think you got to be careful, right? Just like when you're practicing, when you're, when you're taking care of a patient, you don't want to let the immediate always change what your treatment decisions are going to be because you can be too reactionary. But I like this idea that we're honing in on what feels really good. Like, especially after Sunday was so clarifying for reasons I just discussed and that you're hitting on, which is just like, man, that felt really good. I don't really care if I get paid for that. You know, like I, I would rather, I'd rather just continue that. That feels really nice. And, and so I think that's really useful. And I have a sense of a very optimistic personality. I think you do too. And I think that if you do good work, good work will come to you. And, and I think if you're persistent with that, that especially holds true. So my idea is that, yeah, continuing to build that goodwill, continuing to fill that need, continuing to build those relationships will fulfill us in the end, not only from like an affirmational standpoint, but offering you know, business opportunities, if we want to continue that relationship. Yeah, that's well said. That's exciting. I think it's really nice to feel like we've got the podcast, which we're, we're trying to promote. And each time we do an episode of the podcast, I try to uh, grab some clips and post them online and, and just get people aware. Uh, there's a joke in the startup community around, if you build it, they will come. And that's like, not at all true. Like if you build, you you can build the best, it's sort of a, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around, you Mm -hmm. can build the best product or the best service on the planet. And if you're not promoting it, if you're not telling your story, if you're not trying to evangelize, it's really difficult to get off the ground. So I think that's what you and I are are doing is trying to evangelize to just help people, to just connect Mm -hmm. with people. And that if we help people connect with people, if we keep putting out content that's valuable and offering it free, giving it away free, you and I, we don't quote unquote need the money. We're doing this on the, on the side. If it can turn into something that has legs, wonderful, but gosh, we're certainly not going to do that at the expense of helping people. Mm-hmm. So we front and we front loaded. How do we help as many people as possible? Yeah. 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 And whatever we need to do after that, we'll, we'll follow along with it. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Well, this is a fun little experiment, just doing some of these retro retrospectives. I'd like mm-hmm. to do more of them. I like just having the, the dialogue and making it available. In some ways, it feels like we're building this business as a service to the public. I like the idea of sharing our thoughts on how mm-hmm. what we're doing evolves and, and trying to do things that make sense for the patients out there that need folks advocating for them. Yeah, I think I would say the last thing that, that comes to mind before we move on 
that was really meaningful about it is that recognizing that the patients, or at least some of the patients in the group offer just as much, if not more than what I was talking about. And we all understand inherently, I think, or at least are taught to understand as doctors that like peer groups are important and social connections are important, whether they're family, friend, or just like a social network, like this one from Facebook offering just heart failure patients. That's the only thing that links these patients together is their diagnosis. And yeah, but you can get such benefit from that. You know, for instance, one person having their diagnosis for multiple years and kind of coming to the other end, you know, still having to take medicine, still having to see doctors, still having scares every once and then, but just feeling like they have it a little bit more under control versus somebody who's had their diagnosis for months and is still very much in that new phase of like, everything's scary. All the medicines feel weird. It's hard to do this. I don't know what's going to happen. And just we're not doing anything necessarily to facilitate that. And those two people are helping themselves in that moment. And, you know, I think that that is just extremely meaningful and figuring out a way such that these seminars can always offer that, I think will make the perfect kind of intervention. This reminds me of cohorting. You've talked mm -hmm. about that before that in medicine, we're not very good about cohorting patients, which is every patient is suffering alone to some extent that there isn't an opera, there aren't support groups attached to every practice. There are, are obviously support groups that exist out there in a larger universe, but it's rare to get plugged into them and said a different way. The patient has to do a majority of the work to get plugged into a group of people that can really relate with what they're going through. And there was this element of, of support that we seem to have with that, with that group. It's a zoom class. It's a Sunday. It's, it's you and I've never really done something like that before, but it was nice to get people sharing. It was nice getting people mm -hmm. uh, to open up, to, to facilitate some of that connection. And I think you and I've challenged ourselves and how can you, and how can we continue to do that at a larger scale? How can we cohort yeah. more people, especially, and which is especially easier to do when you have common conditions, when you have commonalities between patients, because they can really connect over shared questions, shared experiences, makes it a lot easier. It's one of the values of these digital tools. Yeah. I'm like reflecting on things. I'm listening to you, but I'm also reflecting in the same moment. I'm like, why, why would like, why does it happen? I know it does. I'm not, we're not being fair to all different care models that exist in this nation, but I just don't see it very often. I think it's, it's the a, exception, not the rule. I think that's a fair thing to say. And I, I, yeah. I, I'd certainly challenge anyone listening that, that um, has examples of how this is a common practice. It is, mm -hmm. our medical system is, a, as we've talked about, the incentives are 50 year old incentives. Mm -hmm. The incentives mm -hmm. are, are decades and decades old. Innovation mm -hmm. is hard in this system because there, there's not a, there's not a catalyst for big right. changes, which is again, why you and I have tried to put something together that can that can change the culture around medicine, change the conversation around medicine, trying to meet patients where they are and experimenting with what will help patients, what will be meaningful to patients and how can you and I figure a way to, to reach people in a, in a way that's meaningful for them? Yeah, because I feel like if you if you mentioned it, if you mentioned that to a lot of other doctors or healthcare providers, they'd be like, yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense and stuff. It seems logistically difficult, particularly with like HIPAA or privacy issues. How do you reveal somebody's diagnosis to another? And I think I would like understand that, but then I reflect on, but wait a minute with, for one of the most like socially sensitive topics that we have, like substance abuse, there's like an outward peer. It's in fact, like 
common knowledge that you should have a peer network that you can rely upon if you're an alcoholic or a drug addict and or you smoke and, and so on, that you should involve other people who struggle with the same thing and are at a different place in their sobriety or struggle, you know, to help you. And that is something that most people definitely want to keep private. Yet we as an institution in healthcare, like are saying like, no, 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 <laughs> you have to make that public. You have to put yourself out there. So why isn't that the same for things like we talked about heart failure, but it could be any number of things that seem far less sensitive than. Yeah. Right. And you'll have that. to tell me, I mean, I'm curious. So back to medical mm -hmm. education, right? Like I don't understand why that isn't a more common discussion in medical training. Like that behavioral interventions are a common practice everywhere. And obviously behavioral economics and mm. it, each of us that live in our daily lives, by the time we're 30, we understand like how much our, our mental state and our mindset and our emotional state like affect our outcomes and our behaviors and uh, habits. It's surprising to me that that doesn't factor more into how we think about care plans and, and interventions with patients. Well, when I, and just to briefly touch on, I mean, when I reflect on, you know, why doesn't this happen in education phase? And that can be an undergraduate medical education which is medical school or it can happen in graduate medical education which is residency training, right? When you're a physician, you're training to be your specialist of whatever form. And at both instances, generally speaking, what you're trying to ensure is competency and not excellence per se. I think a lot of institutions would push back, including my own and saying like, we of course want excellence. But I think when you get down to it, how you, what your institution is most concerned about are those who are failing, are those who are just passing. You, you really want to make sure of that, which I think is good reason. Nobody wants the medical school or a residency to graduate somebody who can't cut the mustard. And, that, and there's a lot of downside to that. So a lot of resources and focus are spent on that. That's understandable. And I would just say that there are unintended consequences for that, which is if you're focusing a lot on that, it can seep into other things, which is med school's hard. Practicing medicine is extremely challenging. There's an enormous amount to know. We don't even touch really the tip of it when you're even through training. That's why you call like practice, practice, right? You're practicing for decades after and you never really truly master anything. You just gain more experience and understanding and hopefully you're reading and paying attention enough to really offer excellence to your patients. And so my point is just to say, I think that behavioral interventions like that are remarked upon and are acknowledged. But I think that the overwhelming nature of being like, I just have to know all the medicine. I just have to know all the basics of being a doctor and being good at that. And to think like, how could I activate my patients to help other patients is, is, is just a little much. It's like if you reflect on when you first learned to drive hmm. and the concept of just getting on the highway and merging, you know, and how scary and challenging that was to do that to just, oh, when I turn my head, the car goes with me, you know, and, and like, that's really scary. And you just need more time, more experience to really get good at driving and that's the same kind of thing in medicine. There's a lot of data. There's a lot of things. And you just want to like merge onto the highway mm -hmm. without killing anyone. And the thought of being like, well, do I need to like work with this driver two lanes across to do something or pay attention to? I think that's extremely overwhelming because you're just trying to maintain your car and your safety. It's not a perfect analogy, but I, I'm left thinking yeah. about that. I appreciate that. On it. It, it makes me think of, this is why more holistic and, and whatever you define as fringe, you know, functional medicine, I get why it's, it's come up so much because there's this vacuum that's been left by the traditional, you know, Western practices of, of teaching medicine. And, and I see a lot more patients 
inquiring and, and thinking like there's, there's some unmet needs here. I, I need to talk to someone that will, will take a holistic look at my life and, and work with me on that way. I, I can really empathize with those patients. Yeah. And that's its own. I mean, we could do an entire episode, a series of episodes on that. Why, why has holistic medicine sort of been thought of as a bad thing from the, the point of allopathic medicine, which is, you know, MD medicine or osteopathic medicine, which is DO medicine. Just think of them as synonyms. Though I do think we could probably, mm-hmm. let's see if we agree on this. Yeah. Uh, to the extent that holistic medicine um, or, or functional medicine or more, more mm-hmm. non-traditional, I don't know the right term, whatever sure. the proper it's term wellness. is. It's wellness. That's, that's the hot yeah. term for it, right? Which is wellness. Whenever that tries to supplant traditional medical practices, danger complementing traditional medical practices that seems completely appropriate. Yeah. I, I, I just think that they're not the same thing. I honestly, when I reflect on it, and I've been thinking about this more and more, I actually talked with it about my, with it with my dad recently, like two days ago, he's a physician as well, but he's also, and it has less to do with his physicianship as it does with his spirituality and religion. He's, he's Catholic and I'm not, I was raised Catholic and we were just talking about spirituality and what it means to him, how, what it's meant to him over the past decades and so on, how that's evolved. And I talk about this with other folks, yourself included, and just that a lot of structural support for the challenges that life brings in our society have like kind of eroded over time. Like people are less religious now. There's a lot of political strife and people can't seem to trust their systems and institutions. And it's been harder and harder for physicians just to do their job because traditionally physicians offered much more than just medicine. They really, or should anyways, have been there despite no treatments to see you through to your death or your illness or your suffering to be there for your family members. And many physicians still do that. Don't get me wrong. But as like the amount of knowledge has increased, as the amount of things we do has increased diagnostics, procedures, all this stuff. I think that that's starting to push out the other things that physicians should do very well, but there's no one else to catch that, right? There's, Mm -hmm. you could rely upon your priest you know, your shaman or whatever to, to really help that your pull your community center, your leaders and so on to like capture all those things because people still need them. Even though it's not the ninth century humans are humans and we still require all this stuff. And I know I'm like sort of stretching it, but what I mean to say is holistic medicine, I think addresses a lot of those things, which is doc. Yes. My knee hurts, but I'm affected by the fact that not only does my knee hurt, but I can't do the things that I wanted to do. And I want to talk about those things. And I need to like, I need to express that. And I need to mourn the death of me as a basketball player. Cause I can't play basketball with my friends anymore. Cause my knee hurts so bad. And you telling me to use this gel or this like pill and it doesn't solve that problem. And that's the end of our relationship. I got to get it somewhere else. And so I'm meandering a little bit, but I just, I mean, I just think that again, getting it back to our experience with the seminar and seeing what patients can offer themselves. I think that's what translate your doctor feels really good about, which is how, again, do you facilitate getting all the way back physician patient? There's a gulf between them. How do you bring them together? And part of that is like building that relationship to be more holistic or well, or whatever, you know, to, to fill these holes that, we're losing or seemingly it feels that way losing in our communities and societies. I know that was a lot. That's <laughs> but, great, man. No, it's mm-hmm. very valuable. It's, it's good. 
This is a good, I think that's a good spot for us to stop. Uh, short yeah, episode, yeah, yeah. bonus episode. N- yeah. Nice to have an open conversation about where we think we're at with Translate Your Doctor, what we're trying to do with the podcast, with the brand, continuing this exploration of what we think is quote unquote wrong with healthcare, blocking mm-hmm. the physician patient relationship, but also taking a break. I think of every listener to the show as a stakeholder, as a shareholder, as an investor in, in what we're doing. They're taking the time to listen. And I think you and I owe it to them to do check-ins and talk about what we're trying to do and, and involve yeah. them as much as possible in, in what we're trying to build and how we're trying to make a positive impact on the healthcare community. Yeah, I love it. Awesome, buddy. All right, that's a good spot for us to stop. All right, we'll talk later. All right, adios.